And happy birthday, Fallon. This is the big trio. Hey, you guys are getting younger by the, by the year. I'm going to be clocking 40 soon. And I, I'm having my reservations. <laughs> Hope I don't have one of those midlife moments. <laughs> Welcome to Pentecost Sunday, family. Pentecost Sunday, so this morning we'll be speaking about the significance of Pentecost. It's so good to see you all, uh, friends and family. Uh, if you will, please turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2. If you're wondering why I'm... Um, I'm limping. Please consult with uh, Elrico, Coach Elrico, after the service. That man gave me two leg days in one week. <laughs> Only the strong survive. Acts chapter 2, if you're there, please give me an amen. amen. Come on, I'm worried about this right side. Give me an amen, yeah, if you're at Acts chapter 2. You have your notepads, your crayons out. Acts chapter 2, and we'll be reading a few, a few verses. The Bible reads as follows, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord. Everybody say, one accord. And in one place. Everybody say, one place. I don't know why I'm asking you to do that, but sounds cool. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how was it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this mean? Others were mocking, said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who are in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. 
For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only th the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. <coughs> and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. God bless to us the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. You can find that reference in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. At the time Joel prophesied that, it was 787 years before the fulfillment of that word. Tells us that though the vision tarry, wait for it. Tells us that God's delays are not God's denials. It also tells us that the word that goes out from the mouth of God shall not return unto him void. But it will accomplish all that it was set out to accomplish. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit in the earth today. Thank you that he not only dwells amongst us, but he lives inside of us. And our bodies are the temples and tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit inspire this, this 38-year-old young man, anoint his lips to proclaim your gospel, speak your truth. Confront us, challenge us, change us. Let us leave here touched and marked by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, Amen and Amen. <coughs> As you probably are aware, the book of Acts is attributed to the author Luke. Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He was not part of the original 12 disciples, but it's speculated that he was part of the, of the 70 disciples that accompanied Jesus. When Paul sends greetings in the book of Philemon, he references Luke as his co-worker. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last letter that Paul wrote, in fact, it was at the close of his life, he was in prison in the citadel of Rome. He said that my dear friend Luke, the physician, sends his greetings. Luke was still with him. All has forsaken me. I have no one with me except Luke my dear beloved friend and physician. Paul gives us some interesting information about Luke and lets us know that he was a medical doctor, a physician. Luke's two books, his Gospel and the book of Acts, constitute 40% of the New Testament. Those are the two longest books in the New Testament. 
you will never find a more comprehensive gospel than the gospel of Luke. Because Luke by nature was meticulous and left no stone unturned. His gospel together with the book of Acts takes us from the birth of John the Baptist and the prophecies concerning John all the way to Paul being imprisoned in Rome, a span of 60 years. Luke unfolds the history of the church. Luke has furnished the world with the most replete and exhaustive historical data of the saga of salvation and the operation of the Holy Spirit. For there is no other gospel author and no other author that gives us more information about the Holy Spirit than Luke. Luke was meticulous in nature. He was a comprehensive storyteller. He's known to be a lover of the Holy Spirit. Theologians refer to him as the historian of the Holy Spirit. Compared to Mark and Matthew, Luke references the Holy Spirit 17 times in his gospel. In the book of Acts, he references the Holy Spirit 56 times. And I find it quite ironic in a sense, and quite out of harmony that a physician, someone who's more disposed to be naturalistic and humanistic in their thinking, would give us such insight into the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. Luke understood that there are two realms. There's a natural realm that's governed by natural laws, but there's also a spiritual realm governed by spiritual laws. And so Luke tells us and records for us in Acts chapter 2, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, he tells us that this encounter and, the, and this birth of the church took place when the, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And Pentecost took place 50 days after the Passover. It was 50 days after Christ had died. Pentecost was one of the seven feasts that God commanded Israel to celebrate in Leviticus chapter 23. He told them to celebrate the Passover and each one of these feasts pointed to Christ or some attribute about Christ. He told them celebrate the Passover lamb, commemorate the Passover, Christ our Passover and sacrificial lamb. He said commemorate the feast of the unleavened bread, which speaks about Christ, the sinless, perfect Son of God. He told them to, to commemorate the feast of first fruits, which was a third day celebration in the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, which spoke to the resurrection of the dead, Christ the resurrected Savior. He told them to celebrate the day of atonement, which occurred once 
in a year in the hebrew calendar where the high priest would enter into the holy of holies on that one day and make atonement for the sins of israel christ our high priest who did not enter into the holy of holies made with men's hands according to hebrews chapter 10 but entered into the presence of god and represented us he told them to celebrate the feast of tabernacles speaking about god with us Emmanuel and he told them to celebrate the feast of trumpets this was a decree that God gave that everyone should rest from their labors and this was commemorated with a trumpet sound and this reminds me of first Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Christ himself appears there will be a shout of an archangel a loud shout and the, and the sound of a trumpet blast and the dead in Christ will raise first. Lastly, he told him, you celebrate Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, which speaks to Christ, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. You know, Luke was the only gospel author to write the fulfillment of this prophecy of John. For John prophesied in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 3, prophesied its reference in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1. He said that the one coming after me, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And Luke records the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so Pentecost had come. The arrival of the Holy Spirit. The birth of the church. This event was prefigured and foretold under the old covenant. And Colossians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that whatever transpired under the old covenant was only a shadow of the substance to come. It was only a type of what was to come, which was Christ. And so on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, God wants to meet with the people of Israel after they journeyed out of Egypt and into the wilderness. God wants them to experience him. And so he speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, bring them to the foot of the mountain, but command that no man touches the foot, lest they be, they be stoned to death. And I'm going to come down and my presence is going to come down. And I want the people to see and hear that I speak with you and that you are my man. You are my choice leader. You are my prophet. So Moses gathers the people and the glory of God comes down in a fire on Mount Sinai. And there's a thunder and there's a wind and there's a shaking, an earthquake on the mountain. The mountain is trembling and the people won't come near. In Pentecost, we have the same imagery expressed. Tongues of fire. There was a shaking. There was a wind. The sound of a mighty rushing wind. When God had given Moses the, the Ten Commandments, he came down from Mount Sinai to find the children of Israel worshipping a golden calf. And God was totally enraged after having delivered them out of Egypt giving them the law and manifesting his presence and his power. They turned to worship a golden calf 
And God commands Moses, you kill all those culprits. All those who were in rebellion to this foolishness. And 3,000 men died that day. 3,000 men died for idolatry. And on Pentecost, God came down the form of the Holy Spirit. And God filled the hearts of his people. And God did not rain down judgments, but God rained down salvation. And 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God that day on Pentecost. Genesis chapter 11 also prefigures Pentecost for us. Where we have a group of men led by Nimrod. Genesis chapter 11. They get together and they say, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower to the heavens. Let's reach the heavens. And when God saw this, the Bible says that he, he took a lift down from heaven to earth. To come and see this rebellion. And he wasn't pleased. And he said, if I leave men in this state of mind, nothing will be impossible with them because they're so united. So what does the Bible tell us? That the men at Babel that were united in rebellion, they built a tower to reach the heavens. But at Pentecost, God said, I'm going to unite 120 disciples in obedience and I'm going to come down and build for myself a church. And at Babel, God judged the rebellion of those men and scattered them across the earth. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and gathered the lost into the kingdom of God. And so it was at Babel that God confused their tongues. They spoke in diverse languages and couldn't understand each other. But at Pentecost, God gave his church a new tongue. And they began to speak in unknown tongues. And those who knew the language could understand what they said, even though they themselves did not understand. And so Pentecost introduces us to the Holy Spirit. Pentecost reintroduces us to the Holy Spirit. Pentecost inaugurated his arrival. He was introduced to us in the beginning of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, hovered over the face of the deep. He's referenced in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. The Bible says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who is thirsty come and take up this free gift of the water of eternal life. He could not come in the way he did at Pentecost until Christ 
was glorified and exalted at the right hand of the Father. For Jesus himself said to his disciples, it's more beneficial for you that I go. Because unless I go, the whole, I cannot send the Holy Spirit. He said, it's to your advantage, it's to your benefit. It's better for you that I'm not with you and the Holy Spirit is in you. That's the advantage. So what would be the, the distinction between the Holy Spirit then and the Holy Spirit now? Is that the Holy Spirit under the old covenant could only come at isolated moments, at separate times on random people for specific tasks. But the Holy Spirit now can be with us permanently and live inside of us as a guarantee of eternal life. Who is this Holy Spirit? Can I remind you this morning that He is the author of life. All of creation owes its existence to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 103, verse 30 says, Lord, you sent forth your Spirit and it's created and you renew the face of the earth. He is your creator. Job chapter 33, he exclaimed, he said, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of God has given me life. Jesus said in John chapter 16, he said, it's the Spirit that gives life. He is the author of life. He is responsible for creation and he is responsible for recreation. A religious man met Jesus at night in John chapter 3. His name was Nicodemus. And he wanted to know how does Jesus do the miracles and signs he does. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. For that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. For unless you're born of water, speaking of natural birth, and unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. For that which is flesh is born of flesh, and that which is Spirit is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that when we receive the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the guarantee of our inheritance to the glory and praise of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed with against the day of redemption. Not only is he the author of life and the agent of creation and recreation, but he's also the author of the scriptures. The scriptures belong to him. The Bible tells us in Peter chapter, chapter 1, it says, For prophecy came not by the will of man, nor of the religion of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed, inspired, by God 
and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training of righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means every time you quote the Bible, you quote the Holy Spirit. It's his greatest gift to you. The B-I-B-L-E. His precious gift to you. He takes on no strict form. He's often expressed in different metaphors. And perhaps that's why there's so much confusion and misapprehension about who he is and what he does. He often does not leave footprints in the sand. He works very mysteriously and elusively. So don't let the metaphors mislead you. He influences, but is not an influence. He's powerful, but is not a power. He's not an impersonal force, like the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you. He's a person of interest. Jesus said, when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He's not a subject to be studied. He's a person to be experienced. The Bible speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's all powerful. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus, after having been persecuted and whipped and crucified on the cross, died and descended into the underworld, Bible says that it was the Holy Spirit who grabbed him out of the clutches of the grave and death and raised him to life. And the Bible says the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you and is able to quicken your mortal bodies. Amen. He pulled the sting out of death. He robbed the grave of its victory. It was the Holy Ghost. He's all-powerful. Scripture testifies that when Gabriel came to Mary to announce that she's going to conceive the Son of God, that she looked and responded to the angel and said, how can this be? And Gabriel said, don't you worry. Not many days from now, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And the power of the Most High will come upon you. And you will conceive the Son of the Spirit. So the Bible says, It is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. That's why Jesus said, If there's anything you do, you wait in Jerusalem, church. Acts chapter 1. You wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. When the Holy Spirit is poured out. He's all powerful. Not only is he all powerful, he's all knowing. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For who knows the, the things of man and the mind of man except the spirit of man within him. Likewise, who knows the mind of God except the spirit of God. I've got a friend, his name is Ashwin. Some years ago, 
His life was a life of addiction. And for some reason, he found himself at a tent crusade. And Daniel Colender from Christ for the Nations was preaching. And he made an altar call. And just out of the blue, this guy is from the States. This guy is an international guest. This guy don't know Ashwin from a bar of blue soap. All of a sudden, Ashwin hears his ID number being called out by the preacher. He's like, my God, is, is, is that me? Are you talking to me? That's my ID number. He says, yes, I'm talking to you. Come to the front. He says, how do you know? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. Some years ago, we were in a church service. I was back. I was still a Marisburg boy. And I'm in the service. And God is speaking to different individuals. And I, and I walk back to the toilet and I'm saying in my heart, Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten me? My life is so out of harmony. Nothing's going right for me. Have you forgotten me? Speak to me. I get back to my seat. And the preacher points at me. And says, the Lord says, young man, that I have not forgotten you. How did he know? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. Not only is he all powerful and all knowing. But he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You cannot hide from him, David said. Where can I hide from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, even there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Lord, your hand will be upon me. He said to his disciples, Lo, that I am with you always to the end of the ages. Greenville testified last week that he thought God was South African. He got to the UK and he found the presence of God. His entrance into a room does not necessitate his exit from another. In other words, for him to come up and show up here does not mean that he left anywhere else. That's what a force he is. He lives inside of each and every single one of us. And he hears all of our prayers simultaneously. I don't know how that's possible. This is a finite mind to comprehend an infinite God. Some of us are here we are faced with Goliaths and mountains and challenges we don't have the solutions for and we're trying to do it without the Holy Spirit. We're trying to raise kids without the Holy Spirit. Some of us are trying to do church without the Holy Spirit. And so the day of Pentecost not only marked the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but it marked the establishment of the church. The church could not be birthed apart from the Holy Spirit. The church birthed the Spirit. The, the, the Spirit birthed the church. The Spirit is responsible for the birthing of the church, just as he was responsible for the birthing of Jesus. He is responsible for the establishment of the church. He indwells the church. And just a few observations 
Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 2 tells us that 122, sorry, 120 disciples gathered in the upper room and were praying in one accord and then the Holy Spirit came. The first thing I want you to pay attention to is the fact that it was 120 disciples. Not 119, not 118, because nothing in scripture is by coincidence. Nothing. I told you a few weeks ago, I, I read like Sherlock Holmes. Because <laughs> God is into the details. 120 disciples in an upper room. And according to Jewish law, no synagogue could be established without the presence of 120 men. Come on. If there was 119 and the one guy was late for the meeting, the synagogue where the business of God and the worship of God uh, was, was dealt with and conducted, the worship and business of God could not be established apart from 120 men. And so God said, I'm going to formally establish me a place where my business and my worship can be conducted. And I'm going to gather to me 120 disciples because 120 meant there were no coincidences. There was no random selection of disciples. God had formally established his church. The second thing I want you to pay attention to is that 120 disciples were gathered. Everybody say gathered. I know some of you are thinking, oh, I miss online church. <laughs> but let me tell you, there is no substitute for personal connection. No substitute. How can we lay hands on you across through the online platform? <laughs> it's still a commandment to lay hands on the sick. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, and let us consider one another and stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, which is the custom of some, but provoking one another to good works, even so as we see the day approaching. Not only were the 120 disciples gathered the Bible tells us that they were in one accord. They were in one place and they were in one accord. They were in unity. There were no factions in the church. There was no division in the church. There was no backbiting amongst them. They came together with one mission and one heart and one agenda and that agenda was God. So the Bible says in Psalm 133, Oh, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head that ran down to the beard, even Aaron's beard that ran down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew on Hermon, as the dew descends upon the mountains of Zion, there the Lord commands a blessing 
But where there's unity, he commands a blessing. That's why he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. You can vouch for it. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was a corporate, communal, collective experience. It wasn't a personal experience. It was a communal, collective experience. That means it wasn't about an individual's gift, an individual's experience. It was about the collective. It was about the community of believers. Not only were these disciples gathered, not only were they united, but they were also praying. 120 disciples were found praying. The Holy Spirit fell upon a praying people. We want to experience and encounter the Holy Spirit apart from prayer. That's not possible. That's not possible. If we are a stranger to prayer, we are a stranger to God. A life without prayer is a life without power. If we're not praying, we're strange. If we're not praying, we're playing. We're playing church family. If we're not praying. Not only were they, were they praying, but I want to bring your attention to the fact that they were obedient. Because Jesus said in Luke 24, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 1, Go wait in Jerusalem. Not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's coming. And they listened and they obeyed they were waiting in Jerusalem and they were praying obedience is still the condition for all God's promises you will never inherit the blessings of God apart from obedience not even prayer is a substitute for obedience you can't ask God to bless something unethical. You can't ask God to bless you when you are being disobedient. And he said, don't touch. And you're touching and say, Lord, bless this one. No. Obedience is pivotal. Obedience is better than sacrifices. He wants obedience. Obedience is the expression of our faith and Solomon said this in in the book of Proverbs in a very harsh way he said he who rejects the law even his prayers are an abomination if you reject the word of God how do you expect God to give you an ear you reject his voice but he must accept your voice And in closing, I want to tell you that if you've experienced Jesus and you've given your heart to Jesus, and right now, right here, you can say, Preacher, I've accepted Christ in my heart. This was the day. And if you have not had a subsequent experience of being filled by the Holy Spirit, You need to experience that this morning. Amen. Because what happened in Acts chapter 2 
was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every man and woman must come to Christ and must experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to close the meeting, but if you need prayer and you say, Preacher, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm a child of God. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to linger on and I'm going to ask a couple of the brothers just to linger on and sisters to linger on. And we'll be waiting here for the next two, three minutes. And then uh, we'll just pray with you and we'll trust God for the infilling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that fine? Okay. Can we all stand this morning?